You're listening to NapaBroadcasting.com. Thanks for joining us once again here on NapaBroadcasting.com. From time to time, Bill Chadwick drops in and visits us here to talk a little bit about some of the amazing places that he's been and some of the unique perspectives that he has on the world around us. No, not the world here in Napa, not even the world here in California, but parts of the world that the rest of us don't get to see. And he's going to share some of those experiences with us right now as he talks about a recent trip to Rwanda. Bill, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for the invitation, Jeff. It is great to have you here. First of all, uh, for those that uh, haven't heard us talk about some of these trips before, talk a little bit real quickly about what it is that brings you to these unique places in the world. I'm on the faculty down at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, and I travel around the world and teach uh, program management for material acquisition. When we sell a piece of equipment to a one of our allies, we also sell instruction that goes along with that to, so that they can incorporate that into their inventories. And I've visited, uh, I've been to 17 countries in the last seven years. This was my first trip to Rwanda. Was it different than you expected? Was it surprising to you? It was very surprising. Um, you know, Rwanda, of course, is most famous because of the site being the site of the genocide that right. took place in April to July of 1994. 800,000 Africans were killed at the rate of about 8,000 a day. It took place over a 100-day period in that uh, spring and summer. Uh, made famous by the movie Hotel Rwanda Rwanda, uh, that that uh, that came out in the the mid-2000s. But uh, I was there with many of the officers. uh, Only the the most senior colonels really uh, were around during that time frame in 94. But some of the some of the the um, Rwanda patriotic forces, the Tutsis who had come over from Uganda, um, were re reincorporated into uh, repatriated into the armed forces of the country now, uh, including Paul Kagame. Kagame was one of the invaders who came into the country in 94, and he's now the president. He's just been reelected for a third term. So I was there with a group of of, uh, men and women, officers, who certainly are aware of what happened uh, in the 90s. And I put the question to him. I said, the sort of of genocidal activity that took place in 94, could it happen again? And they said, no. Uh, They don't think that, that that kind of environment exists today. Uh, and they don't think that uh, they think there's enough communication between um, factions between the Tutsi and the Hutus. Mm-hmm. Those are the two clans, uh, tribes that that populate the country. Right. And even though it couldn't happen today, talk a little bit about how politically stable it is there at the moment. Well, as long as Paul Kagame is the president, they're probably in good shape. Uh, I don't think he's done anything to prepare a successor. Uh, he's 65. He's the same age I am. He's at the point in his life where he probably uh, will serve, could serve, for another five or six years. But I don't think the country's done a lot to look at succession planning. Um, and it's centrally located in a really tough spot in Africa. It's east of the Congo, uh, which is always uh, in unrest. There are lots of guerrilla movements that cross back and forth between uh and around Rwanda, from Burundi, Uganda, uh, Tanzania is pretty. Tanzania is to the east, and is pretty stable. But uh, that whole region is 
is gen- is in general unrest right now. Right. And a lot of that springs from Uganda, where there's an awful lot of unrest that is little by little spreading out to the region. That's right. That's right. Um, there's more unrest in the eastern portion of the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is across the Congo River, mm-hmm. and that's probably where more revolutionary groups are stationed, in, including Joseph Kony and the LRA. Um, there are a number of armed groups that consider that safe haven in that in that part of the world. What are the outside? global and strategic influences in that part of Africa? To, to what extent is their influence from China, from Russia, from, from the U.S.? To, to what extent are other forces interacting with some of those countries? Well, first and foremost is the Chinese influence is significant. Right. Uh, they are pouring billions of dollars into those countries, building roads, uh, uh, sports stadiums, hotels, business uh, office buildings. I see a lot of building going on. Uh, I've spent time in, in uh, Kinshasa mm-hmm. in the Congo, and this was my first trip to Rwanda. But there's a lot of construction going on. So that's the first is economic infusion on the part of China. Why is China spending so much money there? China wants to influence uh, the extraction of uh, raw materials. The uranium that went into the first atomic bomb came from Congo. It was actually dug out of the ground in the eastern part near south of Goma. Uh, there are also lots of uh, mineral uh, rights to be had, hmm. and China wants to play a role in, in uh, getting access to those, those minerals. What about other influences? You know, for a long time, Africa w- was a way in which different uh, global powers would conduct proxy wars in, in, in Africa. Well, those proxy wars right now are best exhibited by what we just saw happen in Niger recently. Right. Al-Shabaab and other um, ISIS-related, if you will, or Al-Qaeda uh, adjuncts are moving around in that part of the, that part of the continent. Coming out of the uh, the uh, Zagreb the, or the um, the Sahel and the other um, desert areas uh, further to the north and northwest, there's a lot of ground in Africa that nobody really controls, and so um, there's lots of kidnapping going on. There's lots of uh, extraction of oil uh, reservoirs and, and reserves by guerrilla forces that are then selling that oil on the black market that's taking place. Kenya is just, Kenya's having uh, elections coming up this weekend. Who knows uh, who will get elected in those and then be in charge of the country. One of the things that's so remarkable, and I don't know if you, you find this in talking to people after these trips or since you've been back from this trip, to get people engaged in or interested in even in light of what what transpired in Niger, there seems to be no interest, so little interest in this country and what's going on in Africa right now. Well, you say that, but I have to tell you, Jeff, uh, I just heard a figure yesterday. There are 6,000 American soldiers in the continent. There's 800 in Niger. I mean, on any given day, there are 20,000 people deployed around the globe from the U.S., uh, I think it's terrible that four men lost their life, but we've got a lot of people in a lot of different places. Right. But I'm talking about in terms of public interest. I mean, if you talk to journalists, and, and, and even if we're talking at the New York Times or the Washington Post, when they publish stories about what's going on in Africa, 
There's just so little readership, so little interest. There is so little readership. I think it's hard for people in America to identify with anything that's going on in Africa. Right. It's it's easier to identify with something that happened in a country that you that uh, you know your forebears came from, quite frankly. And you know the association that most people have with Africa is that's where the slaves came from, and slaves want to forget about where they came from. In that context, they want to think about it as, "Hey, I was my forebears were slaves and were brought here against their will to the United States." But let's forget about that and move on with our life. I don't know. It's it's very hard to understand. I know that the the Africa 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 Command is the headquarters that resides in Germany, but focuses on the um, on the larger portion of Africa. Everything less mm-hmm. the Horn of Africa. And General Waldhausen, he's a uh, he's a Marine four star. He testified recently in Congress and said, you know, nobody cares about what we're doing in Africa. I can't get support. I can't get force protection support. He only got about twenty percent of what he asked for in terms of protecting the people that are in Africa. So you can see how some of that's borne out in national policy. Right, and it's one of the reasons that China has been so successful for the past. 10, 15 years in expanding its sphere of influence there because there's been very little pushback from anyone else. Well, they expand their influence, but they really don't send any military forces to do anything. We're trying to do, uh, we're trying to conduct a lot of security assistance in Africa. That's part of what I'm there for. We call it security assistance. Giving them instruction and assistance so that they can uh, incorporate a new piece of equipment, a a new fleet of vehicles, for example, or or surveillance equipment. Uh, the Chinese aren't doing that. The Chinese are just bringing their know-how and and funding for new projects, new construction projects. And do you think that, that this incident that happened in Niger is, is going to change anything in terms of people paying attention, even Congress paying attention? Well, Congress certainly sounds like they're going to pay more attention. They want to hold hearings and find out why those four men were killed. And and all seem very surprised that there were 6,000 troops in Africa. Well, you know, they sound surprised. I suspect that everybody in Congress is aware of where our troops are. Right. I don't think unless they're on a classified secret mission, and these four kids were not on a right. – it was not a classified mission. Uh, one of the kids was a mechanic. Uh, three of them were special forces guys. One was a maintenance specialist. They were probably on some routine training mission and just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And what impact do you think that will have What if, if there are hearings, if there is more attention paid? Is that positive or negative? Uh, well, <laughs> I think it's, uh, that's, a, that's a really good question, Jeff. I think it's negative in that what we will start doing is demanding that people sign forms that say they know they're going into dangerous places. Uh, positive in that I think that we will start to look, is this mission really necessary? Do we really need to send four kids out in a vehicle to go do this sort of mission uh, without, without bodyguards? Jeff, when I first started going to Afghanistan, I would ha- I would be in a convoy to go to a training site, and there would be three vehicles, one in the lead ahead of me, one behind, and everybody was armed. The last time I was there, uh, I was in I was in one vehicle with one young man who was driving and a bodyguard, and they gave me a pistol. 
So, I mean, that's that's where we're at now in some of our deployments. And it's no less dangerous in Afghanistan. It's no less dangerous. <laughs> right. We just don't point have the that resource. out. Yeah. We just, we just don't have the resources to, to adequately to, – to have a robust protection plan. Why don't we have the resources in your view? Is it a question of money, personnel? Why? Well, uh, it is definitely a, a, an issue of personnel. You know, we've reduced the size of the, of the Army considerably. Since we've withdrawn our large contingent in Afghanistan, we've ripped out one brigade out of all of our out of each of our uh, infantry divisions. Uh, so that's taken out close to four or five thousand people out of each unit. We've drawn down probably twenty percent from where we were five years ago in the military. Mm-hmm. So we've got fewer people trying to do the same thing. And the taskings haven't decreased at all. We've still got lots of countries asking for assistance and aid. And uh, look what's going on in North Korea. We have a we have a pretty sizable contingent in South Korea, and I'm sure that's not going to go down. We probably increase no, the number of people. Probably increase. Yeah. It's probably going to go up. Yeah. And. The other part of it is you, you're talking about uh, having to sign a piece of paper or these four guys not knowing, you know, the, how dangerous it was. It seems like every place in the world is dangerous right now. Sure, like Las Vegas. I mean, who knew when they walked into a concert that somebody would be firing at them from 32 floors up? I mean, this changes, you know, everything that's happening in our world right now changes the complexion and changes the complexity of planning for security for a a simple thing like a music concert. You've now got to got to get far enough away so you're outside the range of small arms, and also take into consideration elevated spaces to shoot from. Do you think people think about that now? Uh, you know, Jeff. If I go to um, Da Giovanni's for lunch, uh, even in the bistro, I'm thinking about how I'm going to get out of there. If I need to, that's just you know that's inbred. But you're trained since I, since that I, way. Yeah, you know, well, but I mean, I, I think the general public. I mean, Las I Vegas that, happens, and everybody's very sensitive to it for a while, and then they forget, and any kind of situational awareness sort of fades away for the average person. Well, you know, the average person in Israel is taught that from a young age. Right. I think it's time for America to relook what we teach our children. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. When my children were taken off and to go to Spain and England for a year away in college, I gave them some basic instruction about personal security, situational awareness, you know, where you sit, where you stand, how you look around. Those are some basic skills I think every American should have. Not so much to make you afraid, but to make you confident. You just put your finger on, I think, the most important part of it is that it generates a tremendous amount of fear. And then that fear is, is unfortunately taken advantage of by uh, demagogues among us. I never jumped out of an airplane, and I made 175 parachute jumps. I never jumped out with, without a certain level of fear. But that fear was overcome by confidence because I'd done it enough and I'd prepared myself mentally and physically so that I could accomplish the mission, which was to get out of the airplane and land safely. I think there's a measure of fear in everything we do. It's just that we, it's just what we do with that fear that makes the difference. And I will tell you, uh, the media does a pretty good job of uh, ramping up fear and taking a perfectly normal situation, 
like I'm not saying that having four men killed in Niger is normal, but given the fact that we've got so many thousands of people deployed around the world, having four men killed in a foreign country is kind of to be expected. We should have expected this. We should know about it. Uh, I'm not fearful when I get on airplanes and go places. I'm not fearful when I ride around in cars uh, in Rwanda, for example. Um, but I, but I do have a measure of concern for my own personal security. Talk about the economy of Rwanda. Um, Rwanda has seen a big influx of foreign capital, a lot of it from China, but also from countries in Europe. Rwanda is is uh, booming right now. Uh, there's lots of construction. There's lots of uh, investment in technology. Uh, they're seeing a great influence. Uh, in the tech world and um, in cybersecurity, um, building equipment. I was very impressed with what's going on in Rwanda. But I have to say, it reminded me, um, it reminded me of, the, of, the, of the conservative worlds that I have seen uh, that are run by pretty strict regimes. For example, in Rwanda, uh, the way you get around in town is not b- via taxi, but rather getting on the back of a motorbike. Every single passenger was wearing a helmet, something I've never seen in any other country, Jeff. Wow. All the drivers of the motor- motorbikes were wearing helmets, and every passenger. And they stopped at stop signs, and they took the instructions from policemen uh, who were standing in the middle of intersections. It was, it's a, it's a regimented society in many, many ways. Wow. The question I had about that was, I, my concern was, do they maintain that authoritarian way of life to, to keep down the possibility of another upheaval and, and genocide? I don't know. One of the reasons I was given for the that that allowed the genocide to happen was so few people knew uh, what was going on in the outside world or the rest of the country uh, they used their transistor radios and that's the way the Hutus actually propagated uh, a lot of the hatred for Tutsis was that they published this over radios that had been handed out to people to Hutus Mm. that they were able to incite violence and the threat of these Rwandans returning from Uganda that were going to invade the country and basically take over. There was a great holdover, too. I, I, I think this is an important point. The, the Belgians who had, who had colonized right. actually showed favoritism to the Tutus. So the Tutsis, the Tutsis had been the favored class, which caused resentment. It was actually on an identification card that they identified the the tribes to maintain their separate their separate status and to show favoritism to one over the other to what extent does the genocide hang over the memory of the country to what extent is is the sense of it still part of the country well they've done they've gone to great lengths to memorialize it and to cr- create uh, sites where you can go and visit my driver for the two weeks that I was there lost everyone in his family except for his mother. Seventeen members of his family were killed by their neighbors, by people who were close to them. His mother escaped with him 
and she went to Uganda where she, uh, her husband was killed. She met and married a Ugandan man and still lives in Uganda. Her son, my driver, uh, has returned to the country. He will not go into the memorial. It's too difficult. It's too painful mm-hmm. for him to go in. Um, I think that what the country has done is perpetuate the myth that it was a lot of external influences. People from outside their country were inciting violence. Uh, they also make much of the fact that the United States and the European community did nothing. They blame mm-hmm. us. They blame the United States for not intervening. They blame the foreign um, the foreign press for not doing a better job of publicizing it. Um, I think there's a thin crust of civility, but that there is still a lot of resentment between the two tribes in the country. Mm-hmm. What is it, what do you, as you, when you look at that in Africa and, and in Rwanda, and then you come back here and you listen to talk of tribalism in this country, how does that compute with you? Well, you know, um, human beings have, I, I don't think human beings have a propensity for violence but I think that when you go to a country like Rwanda or Bosnia-Herzegovina, for that matter, you see what humans have been able, what, had, what they are capable of doing to one another. I saw it firsthand in El Salvador during the Civil War right. where I saw, you know, guerrillas uh, torture and kill um, town leaders, the mayor of a town uh, in, in the region where I worked. When I come back and I hear people make comments about that, uh, I think that most Americans don't have no clue what they're talking about. They use terms like that, but they really don't see how ingrained that can become, especially when it's when it's uh, lopped on top of uh, economic uh, insecurity. Uh, you know, the the inability to get access to basic needs. How was your work received there, given their attitudes towards Americans, as you said before? The Rwandan officers, generally speaking, military officers in foreign countries where I visit, are most of them have been exposed to U.S. military, either by coming here to the United States for courses of instruction or in seeing advisors in their country who interact with them. They are very open and honest with me, very supportive. I've always been... Uh, very well received in foreign countries. The only country that I that was really standoffish with me was in um, Tajikistan. Tajikistan has a very repressive uh, regime. Had a dictator there for the last 25 years. They were they were very secretive and did not share much. But I have to tell you that the students they sent me were not the men who were supposed to come, but rather they sent me their version of the KGB. Mm. Officers, so they were actually, they were actually trying to, uh, trying to pump me for more information about U.S. capabilities. Hmm. And you were very aware of it. I became aware of it very quickly. Yes, <laughs> and they got nothing. <laughs> well, when they asked me questions about the ranges of drones and really? weapon systems, I knew that they were not there to 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 learn about uh, program management. What's next? Where's next? Next for me is uh, a good bit of work in November and December down in Monterey. I go down there and teach courses to international students, 
Uh, I'm looking forward to that. But in the new year, I'll be headed back to the Czech Republic, probably to uh, Bogota, Colombia, and possibly Indonesia. Well, I hope you'll uh, come back and talk about those trips. I certainly will, Jeff. Bill Chadwick, I thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for listening to NapaBroadcasting.com, Napa Valley Radio for the way we live now.